Welcome to the Tinnily Talks podcast, where we dive into the common legal issues facing today's community associations. Whether you're a manager, board member, or homeowner, you're sure to pick up on some nuggets of advice to help you build a successful community in this ever-evolving and changing world. Hello and welcome to Tinley Talks. I'm Ramona Acosta. And I'm Steve Tinley. And today we're talking about the board's fiduciary duty of care with Mike Graves of SCT Reserve Consultants and Connor Ross of Ross Construction Management. Mike Graves is the owner and CEO of SCT Reserve Consultants and has been doing reserve studies for over 25 years. Mike is a San Diego State alum with a bachelor's degree in economics. He attained his reserve specialist designation in 2000 and his educated business partner distinction in 2013. Both of those are from the Community Associations Institute. Mike regularly submits articles for publication, teaches on reserves, and attends functions of our local trade organizations, CAI and CACM. Connor Ross founded Ross Construction Management in 2009 and has been in construction for almost 30 years. He's a reconstruction specialist with more than 14 years of experience in homeowners association reconstruction. Connor has a verifiable track record for the successful completion from small jobs up to multi-million dollar projects through coordinating trades, developing partnerships, and building a positive rapport with engineers, local officials, vendors, and clients while maintaining costs. In his free time, he spends it surfing or going to the beach with his daughter. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, our topic for today is the board's fiduciary duty of care. And this is one of those topics that we have a hard time getting boards to understand, sometimes getting managers to understand. Um, And recently we had the Surfside condominium collapse in Florida. And I think we thought that this would be somewhat of a teachable moment. You know, you don't want to call a tragedy an opportunity, but, but it is an opportunity to talk to some of our boards and to our managers out there and, and really focus on this duty of care. I think we talk about fiduciary duties in this intellectual context, but really when we get down to brass tacks and and what does that mean? What is the actual duty of care? So Steve, first and foremost, is that something that you could explain to us? Uh, Happy to do it. So duty of care. So when we have these volunteer HOA boards and we do these board trainings, we tell them, hey, you're a fiduciary, right? It's basically the highest standard under the law to to care for the interests of somebody who's not yourself or something that's not yourself, right? So these board members, they're fiduciaries of the association by extension. They're members. And when we deal with HOAs, the duty of care is kind of the one that's that's paramount. It's first and foremost. and, And that really is the duty to act on an informed basis with regard to the best interests of the association. So understanding what that means is, okay, well, duty to act, how do I act? What's the scope of how I'm supposed to act? Well, you as the board member are supposed to make sure that the association is upholding its obligations. And those obligations, especially in a condominium environment, like in the Florida tragedy, is really to maintain assets, right? To maintain the actual common area elements, the structural components of which all these different units are comprised, right? That is your duty, that's the association's duty. And fulfilling your duty of care requires you to make sure that you're making decisions on an informed basis. So whether it's reading your board packets, it's consulting with experts, right? When it's a situation involving your association's obligation to prepare a reserve funding plan, right? Or to publish a reserve study, the duty of care of a board member will require the board to engage the services of someone like yourself, Mike, to guide them through these volunteers through that process to make sure you do that exhaustive review and comply with the code. Connor, in your scenario, we have, you know, a pipe leak situation. We need to do, you know, a repiping project or a reconstruction project. We're board members. We're volunteers. We're supposed to be volunteers. So our duty of care requires us to make sure that we're 
actually going to approach this project with the skill and expertise with somebody who uh, you know who needs to be in that position to do that? Someone such as yourself, right? It's informed decision making. Um, that's really what the duty of care is, and it doesn't necessarily require the board to act, right? There are certain circumstances where a board says maybe it's a legal issue. Hey, Steve, or you know one of our attorneys, does the board have to do this? Do we have to you know accommodate this particular request? And we can tell the board legally, ethically, no, you don't have to do that. You do not have to act in this case, and the reason is because of this. Right? So the duty of care is not necessarily the duty to act. It's when you are making a decision either to act or not to act, you have information that you can reasonably rely on as a board member uh, in carrying out that duty. And that's, you know, and that's first and foremost that duty of care. And that's, as you said, Ramon, it's an unfortunate thing that we have this Florida scenario as, a, I guess, a teachable moment, but really a tragedy where there's probably some individuals here that really didn't understand or appreciate the extent uh, of that duty until it was way too, way too late. Yeah, and, and there's still a lot of investigation that needs to be conducted. Um, but some of the information that we have so far was that there were some structural engineering inspections that had taken place. And although the, the initial report was that there was no indication of a structural collapse, there were some visual signs of cracking, spalling, exposed rebar. And there was an initial repair estimate of $9 million. And I can tell you from my past experience as a manager that that would have caused some jaws to drop and some gulps in the throat. You know, this is $9 million. How are we going to come up with $9 million? And typically, you know, the first place that they go is to their legal counsel. So what's what's the kind of advice that you would give a board in that situation? Well, you know, it's, it's tough when you're sitting there, and I forget the number of units. Let's just say it's around number 100 units that are looking at a $9 million repair expense. Okay, well, how did this repair expense come to light and the $9 million get factored? And what's the nature of it? I think based on the news reports and all this information that we're talking about, we don't really know what happened, right? We only have news reports to go off of, and that's kind of what we're talking about. Uh, but, you know, you had a, an engineering firm that performed an exhaustive analysis because this association, I guess, under the Florida statutory scheme, they have to apply for a recertification every 40 years, right? And so this building was right up against that deadline, so they reached out to this engineering firm to do that recertification. And they obtained this report saying... Yeah, and this was in 2018, I believe, about $9 million in repair expenses. And again, there's confusion as to whether or not they said, no, this place is not safe as it is, or you can do the repairs and it's okay for people to stay in there. All that aside, when you have a report saying there's that level of exhaustive damage, I believe it's quoted in the report saying these repairs are necessary uh, to ensure the safety of the residents and the public. At that point, right, from a legal standpoint, we advise the board to say, well, your duty of care Right. Requires now you're on notice of a significant issue affecting this. You have this engineering report, regardless of whether it's nine million or ninety million dollars, and regardless of how difficult that is, you as a board and as unsavory as it is as volunteers, you're not getting paid for this. We get it, but you have to act, right? This has to be something that you have to pursue. So if you need nine million dollars to repair the project, let's do what we can now to start getting that funding in, right? So in California, you can levy special assessments. This would probably qualify for an emergency assessment that doesn't require membership approval. Those are the options that you would have to, you know, truck through. With an expense that big and a report, and again, there's confusion around this saying whether or not it's safe to live in there, this is one of those situations where it's such an extreme set of factors that we would probably advise the board if this was our client. Okay, that's one engineering report and it was probably expensive, but with the significance of everything here, we should probably get a second opinion that was going to help us one way or another. Either it's going to force us in the direction of doing something immediately or call into question other things. But if this is that big of an issue, 
before we decide one way or another, maybe we should at least have a peer review from another engineering firm to see if they agree with their recommendations and to do that, you know, immediately, right? Those, those are some of the, some of the recommendations we would have, we would have given them. But the challenging thing is, is that for whatever reason, I mean, how do you, I'm sure you guys see this in your line of work, how do you get to a situation where community needs $9 million of arguably emergency repairs, right? How did it, how did, how did, it, how did it get to that how did it, point? How did it get there? Because, you know, and, and I was going to ask you, Connor, how do we get to $9 million worth of repairs? And, and I think as we go through this, we're going to find out that while they were doing repairs, um, the, the engineer said, oh, you know, we're finding, as we're digging into it, we're finding more. And we find that a lot of times with reconstruction projects, you know, there's hidden damages that you don't see in an, an initial inspection. And so you, you start digging in, you start pulling away wood, you start pulling away concrete, you find more damage. And so this ballooned from $9 million to $15 million. How do we get to a point where we have that much damage? I, is there deferred maintenance going on? How do we get to that point? Yeah, that's a good question. So deferred maintenance is the biggest killer for an association. Um, we've all seen on our association small scale. What happens when you don't paint wood for 10 years? It starts to split. It starts to fail. It starts to decay. It'll take a $20,000 a year maintenance project and turn it into a $250,000 reconstruction project. When we uncover in reconstruction projects, we start peeling the layers back, we find additional damage. It's not like a repipe project where we know what we're going to come across. We know we're going to have to cut drywall. We know we're going to have to run pipe. We can include language that includes all of that. But when you start peeling back these outer layers, you're going to find that project starts to snowball really fast. If you don't maintain your waterproofing elements on your buildings, these buildings are going to decay. And once you start seeing that decay, it's very hard to slow it down. For example, in structural concrete, you've got two main elements besides the waterproofing. You've got concrete, which is extremely rigid, very little movement. You've got rebar or reinforced um, metal bars that run through it for structural integrity. When water penetrates that concrete, it can grow up to seven times its original size. So rusting rebar expands seven times its normal size. If you have one-inch rebar, where's the concrete going to go when it turns into seven-inch wide rebar? It's going to break. And so we're seeing that lack of maintenance, lack of stopping that water not staying on top of this caused a catastrophic failure. Well, and one of the things that we come across quite frequently as a law firm, and and I used to see quite a bit as a, a manager, is... Boards that want to keep their assessments artificially low in order to maintain their property values. Well, if we compare our community to the to the community next door, which are usually apples and oranges, our assessments are so much higher. So we need to keep our assessments at a certain level, whatever level that they have in their mind, that's going to maintain those property values. And in order to do that, we have to start robbing Peter to pay Paul. We have to start pulling from the reserve fund to start covering those operating expenses, and it starts to snowball. And one year, two years, probably not a big deal, but Mike, you know, when you're doing a 30-year projection, when those assessments are staying level year after year after year after year, what does that do to your 30-year projection in terms of are we going to have enough reserves set aside when components start to fail? Well, so the first thing that comes to my mind now is 
this new term in my vocabulary, duty of care. It, it's interesting because, you know, it rebar, but let me go back to, to this for a second. So rebar, and I'm not an engineer, but it may start out as, as say, one-inch steel. And then, of course, it's, it, it rusts, it starts swelling. And so maybe in a year, it's two inches. In another year, it's four. Then it's eight or seven. Or it, So it's, it's really, there's a compounding effect going on. And that's what makes things jump. We, we see it with uh, wood projects in, in condominiums that are about 20 years old now. They, you know, you, you, when they were first built, the, the paint looks great. And then five years later, when you should paint wood again, well, it still looks great. Another five years ago, it still doesn't look bad. And now you 12, 13 years out, you start painting your wood. And you wouldn't know it then, but it's already deferred and you don't even know it. So then another five, 10 years go by, that wood that was okay is now a, a rotting mess inside and you don't know it until you start prepping for paint. And now when you're just scraping paint, you got a whole bunch of wood going with it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how you wind up with such compounding problems. Now, your original question, what do you do with a community or how do, you, how, do you, how do we address a condo that, say, the board president brags that, well, we've kept assessments the same for 20 years, right? And in the meantime, it's all falling apart around them. You know, the, clearly the, the duty of care there was, was for the homeowners and certainly not for the community. And I think we'll see a lot more of that problem as, as time goes on and the prices of homes just continues to skyrocket possibly because there's such a shortage, mm-hmm. so they say. And so uh, what we wind up having to do is we wind up having to put a funding plan together when we're doing the reserve study that isn't just a, a nice level increase of you know an inflationary 3 or 4%. Instead, what we wind up having to do is spike the increase. Maybe it's maybe right now it's fifty dollars a month per unit, as an example. But when you do the math on the annualized cost of the components, maybe it's in the reserve study it's a hundred thousand. But with the number of units you've got, you're only allocating fifty thousand. So for all these years, instead of the benefit of having compounded early, it's just like your four hundred one k. When's the best time to start it? With your first real check. Right? And instead, what do we do? We wait till we get into our 30s, our 40s. Oh, no. Now, now we, we, we got to put so much more in. And that's the same effect as what happens with funding for, for communities like that. We can usually start at 50 unless they don't run out of, unless they run out of money. But we want to put a better funding plan together, something together so that they've got a plan going forward to achieve better uh, fiscal harmony, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, it's not 50 a unit. It winds up maybe having to be 100 a unit or, or maybe even if it calculates out to 100 a unit, you have to go to 150 because there's so much work that's coming up that that's the only way to get ahead of it if you wanted to avoid a special assessment. You've got to ramp up and get the money in. Right. And instead of having an inflation factor that your homeowners can rely on each year, they're going to understand, well, these assessments are going to go up 3% or 5% every year just to keep up with a normal inflation factor. Now it's now they're jumping up. They're jumping up significantly. And on top of that, there are unknowns in the economy that are going to impact the cost of construction. We've seen wood go up dramatically. Every time there's an oil crisis, an oil shortage, we see you know, the cost of roofing go up, the cost of your patio furniture go up because anything that, you know, that's plastics, that's related, that is reliant on oils is those costs are going to go up. We've seen in California that wages are forcibly going up a dollar per hour 
And, and that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, that it doesn't, doesn't. That doesn't. You know, a dollar an hour doesn't sound bad until you talk about you know your entire roofing crew or your entire paint crew, where every single one of those employees are going up one dollar per hour per man hour, right? And that's the guy making minimum wage. How about the guy making twenty five bucks? Right. Well, he's getting twenty six and a half. The guy making thirty thirty five has got to be getting thirty eight or nine. And on and on and on. Now, now an engineer who might charge 150 an hour, well, I mean, you click 175, and then the next click will be two. Right. I mean, everything just goes up. So there are outside factors that are going to have an impact on your budget. And so even though you're doing, we're doing an annual budget, and you're doing a 30-year reserve funding plan, there are going to be external factors that are going to shake up that plan. So if we can at least be 90%, 95% on the way there, then we're better able to absorb those external factors, I guess is what I'm getting at. Absolutely. It's, it's much better to start putting a little away now and just increase it gradually. Then when, you have, then when you have the hiccups of other greater inflationary factors or something like that, then you still, you know, maybe your whole funding gets knocked down a little bit. But with another adjustment of a little more or a correction of a little more going in, now you're right back to where you were again and you just keep going. Yeah, because I feel like these boards that pride themselves in not raising assessments for years at a time, I think that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I mean, we're going to keep assessments low because we need to keep our property values up. Meanwhile, to your point, Mike and to Connor, you know, there's all this deferred maintenance. The buildings are falling down around them. More and more home buyers are looking at reserves these days. They're becoming more astute. And so your property values go down, because the homeowners know, buyers know that there's going to be a special assessment around the corner. And Steve, I've seen you have this conversation with boards, yeah, multiple times. Well, it's a challenge. It's you know, we used to you know give seminars pre-COVID. What it was like to joke, you know, around the room. I'm sure you do the same thing. Who's been on the board for you know what's a oh you know Steve? We've you know our board's great. We haven't raised assessments in you know 15 years. And you kind of you look at them and you smile, right? You don't want to be rude, but at the same time, like God, I can't. I can't imagine what's under that community's uh, you know surface of paint and how much deferred maintenance is there. And the whole idea, and this is kind of what I think is people are really missing the mark, we need to turn this whole idea of what it means to be a successful board member on its head. Because I think way too many people think we know we're a successful community because our assessments are lower than the neighbors and they've stayed that way. Like, no, your success is dependent upon how well are you maintaining the assets. I think it's really interesting what you said, Mike, when you were like, well, a lot of people, it's not as though they just want to defer the maintenance because they want to be cheap, but they look at the paint you know, on the fascia that they can't touch, really, and they say, well, it looks good. Mm-hmm. Why would we paint it? Because that painting, painting it, right, that surface of paint adds a waterproofing characteristic necessary to preserve that substrate, right? You're not painting just for the sake of it. Nobody's out there to waste money, but understand your job as a board member is not to pat yourself on the back because you avoided a scheduled assessment increase or because you effectively browbeat your reserve analyst into adopting a reserve funding plan that really isn't suitable for your community. It's because your community actually is maintained well, right? There hasn't been a special assessment history. Everything's in tip-top shape and there are no surprises. That's the challenge I think that we have is to educate our boards. Your job is to maintain these assets, right? If you maintain the assets well, then you'll slow the assessment increases. But by sitting there and saying, no, we don't have the money for that. So as board members, we're just going to throw our hands. Well, we don't have the money for that. I'm sorry. We can't fix our waterproofing or we can't you know, do the paint project. Or we don't have the money to repair all the failing uh, plumbing infrastructure in our community. So we're just going to keep doing these repipe you know, on a one-off basis and pay 10x over the next five years than we would have doing a repiping project. You have to sit there and 
sometimes you pencil it out. You don't want to embarrass a board member, you know, but it's a humbling moment when you say, well, you've spent a million and a half dollars over the last two years fixing problems that could have been avoided if you spent a million dollars five years ago to give your community all new all new plumbing, right? So I think that's the opportunity that we can have from Surfside is to really educate these boards. What's your job? What is the duty of care? To maintain assets. It's not to pat yourself on the back or to make your neighbors happy because the assessments aren't going up. The assessments are going to go up. That's just the, that's just the nature of the beast. Well, and, and Connor, you know, when you were speaking earlier, you were referring a lot to the waterproofing elements. And we're going to do a completely different episode that's focused on SB 326. But I wanted to kind of wrap it into this episode because I think that the legislature in California is paying attention to what's going on in Florida. In 2015, we had the Berkeley balcony collapse. And as a result of that, we got SB 721, which focuses on the waterproofing elements of apartments. And then we got SB 326 which focuses on the waterproofing elements of condominiums. It would not surprise me if we didn't see legislation that would now pertain to inspecting some of these high-rise buildings. And in fact, um, L.A. County is focusing on a community right now in Marina Del Rey that has had some of the same structural damages, um, or at least the signs of structural damages that the Surfside Condominium had. So when we're talking about these waterproofing elements, when you go out and and you do an inspection, that's different than the kind of inspection that Mike would do as a reserve analyst. Because when we were talking about SB 721 a couple of years ago, the big negotiation up in Sacramento from our industry was, well, we don't need to be included into 721. That's an apartment issue. We do reserve study inspections every three years. That's already part of the civil code. Connor, if, if you were going to go out and you were going to inspect a community like Surfside or like this one in Marina Del Rey or to do an SB 326 inspection, that's a completely different animal than what Mike is doing in terms of an inspection of the physical assets to create a financial funding plan, right? Absolutely right. So uh, Mike's looking at the overall cost of repairing these things that have defined lifespans, right? Yes. What we would be looking at is signs of or evidence of some of these components breaking down um, and the resulting damage from that. The Marina Del Rey building is actually interesting because likely you have structural issues at the bottom floors, whether that's in uh, below grade or the podium level. And for the people that don't know, podium level is a very thick, high-strength concrete slab that's above typically a parking structure that then has wood framing above it. So when somebody refers to that podium level, that's the concrete base level uh, that living quarters are on top of. But the reason why I think that everything's starting from there is if you watch all these videos, if you read the news articles, people are reporting stucco cracks halfway up the building. Well, why does stucco crack? It'll crack because the sections are too large and cementitious items will crack at some point. Or it'll crack because there's differential settlement. So one part of the building is moving at a different rate than another. So you'll see that in higher levels because of those lower areas. So we would take all of that in uh, to help us 
move down to the base problem. We wouldn't just stop at the stucco cracking and say, oh, we figured it out, the stucco's cracking. No, we've got a, a much larger underlying problem. And yeah, I would not be surprised if these podium levels or below grade areas have to be inspected a bit more thoroughly especially because of these two uh, high-profile cases. Okay, so I'm I'm a community manager, and I do two walkthroughs a month as part of my management agreement. One of those is focused on violations. One of those is focused on landscape and anything else that I see while I'm on site. I'm certainly not a contractor. I don't have a contractor's license. I don't have an engineering license. But I'm out there, and I'm doing my job. And the expectation is, is well, manager, you're here you're accountable to manage this association. So what am I looking for? And, and when do I know that I need to call somebody like you? When do I raise the red flag? Like what you hear so far? Make sure to subscribe to the Tinley Talks podcast at TinleyLaw.com and never miss an episode. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. That's a very hard question to answer. Hairline cracks in what we call slab-on-grade building. We Mostly in our area, we are called slab-on-grade. That is concrete on top of the ground. Because we are also built on highly expansive soils, the buildings are constantly moving, and they're constantly moving at different rates. So we can expect to find stucco cracks to a certain degree on every building we look at. But we have hairline cracks, and then we have, oh my gosh, cracks. Uh, if you're seeing hairline cracks at the corner of garage doors or radiating from the front door, the top right or left corner, probably not that big of a deal. Don't hold me to that. But if you're seeing something you can fit a quarter in, you can fit a finger in, that's the sign of a massive problem. And so if you're seeing anything beyond a hairline crack, it's probably time to mention it and then get it into someone's hands that can do something with it. Okay, so setting that aside then, again, as a manager, if I'm working with my board and I'm painting my wood every three to five years like I'm supposed to, and I'm painting my stucco every 10 years like I'm supposed to, and I'm doing my annual roof inspection, and I'm doing you know, my seal coating, if I'm doing all of those, the regular maintenance of my major components like I'm supposed to in accordance with my reserve study, I'm probably going to catch those things before they become a problem. Maybe, maybe not. You will probably have brought somebody in that knows enough about building to where they should raise that red yeah. flag for you. So I was thinking the same yeah. thing, right? That's mm-hmm. the whole idea, right? I yeah. mean, we're professionals here to do this. This is what California legislature understands. You're volunteers, self-governance. Yeah. The board's not supposed to make the call on whether the building's structurally safe or whether the wood needs to be repainted or not, right? Yeah. What the board is supposed to do is part of their duty of care, right? The theme for this this podcast is to know you're supposed to enlist the services of professionals that have designations, right? That have special certifications and special training and special insurance policies in the event that they're wrong and make the wrong call, right? To come in and advise you on that. And looking at some of the news articles, you'd like to think, well, looking at some of the photos of the building that were you know, issued in the reports and say, well, how does giant, giant cracks, these aren't cracks you could just put a finger in, a fist in you know, a foot inside of how can those things last for that period of time without somebody who comes onto the property just from a CYA perspective, hey, that's a problem. You guys need to do something about that, right? We don't know. 
But that's kind of the bigger concern. But you, I'm sure you used to see that all the time, Ramona, in your management life. Well, and that's and that's why I wanted to get to that point is that, you know, I don't have a, a contractor's license and I'm certainly not an engineer or an architect. So for me, you know, if I'm bringing my roofer on annually to do the annual roof inspection or if I'm bringing um, the paint and stucco guys in every 10 years to paint that stucco, I'm anticipating that if there is a bigger problem that they're going to say, hey, Ramona, we found this. Here's some photos. We need to get in front of the board because there's another issue here. And, mm-hmm. you know, and you may want to have an engineer come look at this. You may need to have a construction manager come look at this. But I'm looking, I'm looking to my contractors to tell me that. But they're not going to tell me that unless they're on property. And they're not on property unless I'm following my reserve study. Yeah. Well, and so to, <laughs> and so to that end, a reserve study, an on-site reserve study is every three year per code. And so what we do, something that just kind of a standard procedure for us is uh, whenever we're doing an on-site reserve study, we reach out to management or to the manager um, and then we invite that person and or any board members that have any interest. You don't want to have too many, right? You have more than more than three in a five member board, then that's a meeting and that's a different that's, well, that's yeah, a different that's podcast the, that you're doing. The, yeah, the black swap team and the helicopters descends on the HOA. <laughs> there you go. To haul them away. <laughs> Perfect. So so it, it's a little more tedious to line up people to come out with us but when we have but when someone meets up with our site inspector and and we're walking around you know looking at components and discussing things a lot of times those maybe not a crack that you could put your fist through but one you might be able to slide your finger mm-hmm. in your pinky through be like people will say well gosh I, I, I walk this every month with our manager well we never see we never saw that and and you get to where you don't see things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you just it's it's not. I guess you can't say it's out of sight, out of mind. But but it's a it's just a, a thing that you just see something every day. You don't think about it. You, and, yeah. And you, it starts out like that, and it grow, a little bit bigger, bigger. It's like it still don't see it. But then you only go on site every three years, and you know we'll typically point things out. Now we're not we're not engineers, we're not contractors, we're reserve people. But anyway, so to that end, it's it's very helpful to point things out. And we do it in really, a, I'm going to say, a, an informal capacity. But then they'll take that information and or, or maybe it'll even stimulate a conversation about, well, you know, we've been having problems with, you know, da-da-da-da-da or whatever. You know, every time it rains, it's always just, you know, it's a, a flood of calls to the roofing company. Or, no, you know, when it rains, it, you know, it's pretty quiet. Yeah. You know, so we'll, we'll take information like that and kind of reserve whisper it in, if you will. About the only thing we can do with decks um, is, is say a stairway can't really get on anybody's deck. That people don't people would take offense to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but if we're on stairways or walkways, you know, we'll usually maybe maybe put a little weight on it and see, you know, or if it looks ripply or you know if it looks wet underneath, you know, we would we would point that out. But we're certainly not qualified uh, to any extent other than in fact, I've tried to make sure that even if a board member or manager asks us. Do we need? To, does our deck fall under 326? I'm throwing business your way. I'm suggesting they get a legal opinion because it seems kind of clear, but yet when you get into the real nuances of it, it's completely not clear. Yeah, and, and so uh, and, and so to that end, that. I mean, at least that board is asking the question, right? Which is another component of duty of care, and this mm-hmm. has been cited in different cases, right? To make reasonable inquiries, ask questions. His board, is that a problem? Well, nobody's said it's a problem. Well, have you asked anybody, right? If it's a problem, well, the manager hasn't said anything. Well, you're the fiduciary of this association. That person's your agent, 
right? So if you're having a reserve study, ask why we do that, right? Ask what that's about. When it comes down to the numbers, ask those questions, right? Don't be afraid of the answers. You can make decisions as a board member and fulfill your duty of care based upon the answers that are given to reasonable inquiries that you make. If you're not asking the questions, you're not honoring your job right, as, a, as a board member. And I think a lot of managers, especially those that are newer to the industry, and it's exhaustive, right, in California, oh my gosh, I got these policy statements, I got these budgetary, I got these mailers I got to send out, then I've got to do this insurance review, I've got to do you know, the reserve analyst, and they look at all these different boxes that just need to be right. checked. Oh, I, I filled that action item, so that's box, well, why? Why is that box there? What's the rationale behind that? Why do you perform a reserve study, right? What is there? What does this tell you? What doesn't it tell you? Do you read the actual limitations of it? This is based on a visual analysis, right, of the major components. It doesn't talk about structural elements or things along those lines. SB 326, I'm thinking about it now, Ramona. Would that have even been wrapped in under this, right, because it deals with, with wood supporting components? Yeah, it, just, it, it only deals with wood. So, so if you're dealing with a high-rise, or you're dealing with tuck under parking or underground parking and you're seeing structural supports that are made of concrete and rebar, SB-326 doesn't touch that. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not so wood. For those listening, right, SB-326, a new bill that was passed requiring these inspections of elevated elements that deals with in response to the Berkeley balcony collapse where there was wood that failed, right? Wood, the waterproofing associated with wood in Florida. It wasn't wood that failed. It was concrete and, and rebar that failed. So even if there was that type of inspection, it wouldn't have... It wouldn't have triggered anything like this. It, there, there wouldn't have been any red flags. Yeah. And to that point, Steve, I think, you know, you and I have talked about this many times. There was such an outcry about SB 721 and SB 326. And this is going to be so expensive for associations. And it's going to be hard for our communities to comply. And our associations don't have the money for this. And I think you, when you and I sat down and talked about it and talked to the other attorneys in our firm, we looked at it and said, you know what? This is a good thing because why do these associations not have the money to take care of this? Because they've been deferring maintenance. Because or, yeah. they've been keeping their assessments. Or they've been trying to say, though. no, it's the homeowner's obligation to maintain the structural integrity of right. the balcony, so which is duty. just illogical for obvious reasons. Well, or and maybe so we, it wasn't built right to begin with. Yeah. Uh, well, there is some of that. Whatever not, the reason, you know, whatever the reason is, and there is that too, but it's just, again, it just comes back to, and now it's, you know, you're going to have a very powerful example. So, well, why are we doing this? Why are we asking these questions? Why are assessments going up? Because we need to maintain the building. Why does it cost so much? Well, because we don't want to be surfside. You know, kind of a you know unfortunate reference to it, but that's I think kind of brings it home. Why do, yeah. why are we paying for this stuff? Well, and, and that was the thing, right? Because with the Berkeley balcony collapse, there were six college age students that died, another seven that were injured. In Florida, we don't even have all of the numbers yet. People are losing lives. Boards have a fiduciary duty of care. They have a duty to properly assess. They have a duty to properly reserve. They have a duty to maintain those assets. And when they fail to do so, the lawsuits start flying. And we saw that with Berkeley, there were several multi-million dollar settlements. Some of it was related to defect, but some of it was related to the landlord's failure to maintain and to their failure to properly respond to the reports of a maintenance issue. In Florida, there's already five lawsuits that have been filed. In California, in our annual budget package, we have a deferred maintenance disclosure where the boards have to notify the members of the deferred maintenance. We also have an assessment and reserve funding disclosure where we have to provide that membership with notification of any anticipated special assessments. But it's only for the first year. Right. Which is, well, which is a good start. 
Well, no, but the, but if you look at the, if I looked up the code on this, and I'm glad that we have an attorney here because on that anticipated special assessment, it's for the special assessment over the 30 years to maintain that component. So if we've been falling behind year after year after year after year, and we're providing these disclosures to the membership, Stephen. Yeah. I mean, where where does that put the board from a liability standpoint? Well, it puts the board. I mean, in, in reality, it's a sad thing because the board now they're not upholding their duty. They're misrepresenting things because they don't want an assessment increase, or a lot of times they're just too apathetic and they don't care and they don't want to be bothered with having to you know do the work of being on a board. And I understand that it's thankless work, but okay, now the board uh, potentially has a claim uh, against it for negligence. So what does that mean? Okay, a homeowner then sues the board. It gets tendered to the association's insurance carrier. They provide a defense, and now there's a loss history on the association's insurance uh, policy that will now increase the cost of premiums for the association moving forward. So as a homeowner, right, my recourse against my board for failing to do its job is to sue them, and by extension, what I'm going to do is just raise the assessments I have to pay because I've now spiked up the cost of our insurance premiums, which is just kind of a catch-22. You're essentially suing yourself. Well, there's a whole lot of... There's a whole lot to lose there. Yeah. Right? Yeah, there's a, the, exactly it, which is like, okay, why are we doing this? Well, we need to keep assessments low. We can't raise assessments. What's the purpose for it? especially in a mid-rise or a high-rise scenario? I mean, how much money is at stake for these decisions that you're making? And if there are obvious problems, well, you know, a lot of finger pointing. I think this was a big board and there was some, you know, the, in, in Surfside and they were pointing the fingers who did what wrong and all that is kind of immaterial once you get to the point where it's a five-alarm fire and you just got to... You got to do what you you need to do, but I think the the real lesson is well, how did how did they get to nine million bucks or fifteen million bucks? Because over the course of the thirty some odd years, they weren't doing something that they needed to do. You know, I mean, how would you? What would be the first visual signs that you would see, Connor? If okay, we have spalling or what? However, the, the rebar rusting or swelling, whatever that term is. I mean, what do you look for in something like that? Is it that obvious or not really? Uh, it can be, but it's not always the case that it's clearly visible. So one thing that both of these disasters have in common is that lack of maintenance led to deterioration of flashing, led to a catastrophic failure. So even if you're not noticing this coming on the horizon, that there's spalling concrete, that you're showing your rebar on something that's holding tons and tons of weight, you still have to follow these recommended maintenance protocols to maintain your building. So sometimes by the time you notice it, major reconstruction is necessary. Now, it may avoid a collapse, but it's still going to be very expensive. The best absolute thing you can do is to maintain, again, the community. You may notice that that spalling concrete. You may notice water stains on the underside of the deck that the 326 inspections will protect against. But then again, you may not. Some of these things may divert damage to an area that is totally unnoticeable so staying on top of those programs is there's there's nothing that matches proper maintenance in anything that we do and steve you go to a lot of board meetings i hear you on the phone i hear a lot of our attorneys on the phone sometimes you um, talk loudly <laughs> well no it's not that but it's just i hear the pep talks a lot Oh, yeah. Um, because one of the things that, that you say to boards all the time is, look, we're going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And I think with that, with the bad taste, you also have to give them a pep talk and, okay, now what are we going to do? Where do we go from here? One of the things that I read about the Surfside board is after 
the 2018 engineering report and after repairs started going underway or started being done, there was infighting amongst the board members themselves and they all just quit. And so suddenly now you have a corporation without a board with $9 million of repairs that need to be done. So how do we get them there? You know, they've already dug themselves into a hole. We got to get them out of it. How do you how do you really encourage them to see it through? Because they do have that duty of care. They have been put on notice. It's now they're under obligation to get the association out of the mess. Yeah, it's a challenge. Um, you know, we've had an example. I've actually me personally working with Connor. I mean, it's a lot of times I think we've worked on a couple communities together where there was a, you know, community wide repiping project with a pretty large bill. Right. And the concern is, okay, well, the board, God, how are we going to present this to the membership for a special assessment? There's no way they're going to vote for this. It's so much money. They're going to come out with the proverbial pitchforks, right? It's going to be, you know, oh, we'll have the attorney there. You could be the firing squad. Yeah, don't worry about it. You know, we'll take the flag. It's no big deal. Um, but in reality, if you, I think, you know, people will support what they feel like they have a hand in creating. So if you approach your membership and your board said, this is a bad thing, this is a bad thing. We can complain about the decisions that were made or weren't made in the past, but this is where we are now. We all live here. We're all invested in this, right? Some of us, I think one, there's terrible one homeowner, I believe, in Surfside, just finished, finished paying off her mortgage like a week before the thing um, collapsed. We all have an invested stake here. This is the problem that's facing all of our investment. These are our options, right? These are our options. This is the report that's here. These are our options. What's there? Present it. Have the professionals there. This is what legal is recommending, right? This is who the engineers that we brought in are recommending. These are the things. And I've I've seen you do this. You do it very effectively uh, at Beanings Connor. So now we have option A, B, and C. And you lay out those things and trust that your membership is going to be mature, right, and sober enough to look at the thing and say, well, okay, well, you know, in that case, we've got to do this and I'll make plans for it. It's unfortunate, but I appreciate the fact that this information was communicated to me in an open way, asking for my support, Rather than trying to hide things and what's going on, oh, we can't have, let them see what the cost is because then they'll be blaming the board. At that point, you just need to come clean, right? This is what's going on with the community. Whatever decisions were made regarding piping in the past, here we are right now. We've got failing plumbing. It's going to cost X to fix it. These are the benefits. We can take out a loan. We can prove a special assessment. We have the attorney here to help explain the legalities of that. What do you as a membership want to do what are your questions? Let's answer all those right now so that before we go out to the membership for a vote or before we seek their approval or their endorsement of something, they're fully aware of what's going on and they feel like they've been able to guide the decision-making in some respect. I think a lot of the challenges that boards make in these difficult decisions are compounded by the fact that they kind of keep the membership at arm's length right, and only let them know what they think they need to know and then at the end just sign, oh, you just need to sign it, don't worry about it. It doesn't work that way, right? At least that's been my experience. You have similar experience to that, Connor? Yeah. The more information that you can come out with, the more involved you can get the community, the greater your chance of success. I think that the most successful town hall meeting slash voting processes we've had are the ones where we're able to have a board member introduce the people that are there, talk about why we're here, right? We're here because of X, Y, and Z. We've brought in these people. Here's who they are. Here's the process in which they were brought in. From there, your experts take over. They talk about the problem. You bring in somebody to discuss the financials because you're less likely to have board members run off if a professional is there to talk about the numbers to show all of the bridges that you cross to get to that point. And it really should be a victory lap. If 
these people have done in their volunteer work a lot of work over the, the course of sometimes years to get to that point. So it really, like I said, should be a victory lap for them. You've gotten to the point where we've dotted every I and crossed every T, and here's where we are. So not hiding anything is critical, coming forward with everything, and community involvement. Without community involvement, even with the other bridges crossed, you're still not going to find success. Yeah. So Steve, clarify something for me, because when we started the podcast and we talked about Surfside and and the $80,000 special assessment, one of the things that you mentioned was, well, this is an emergency. We could probably, you know, in California, that's something that we could probably pass as an emergency assessment without going to a membership vote. But you're also talking now about a town hall style meeting where we have a large repipe or a large reconstruction project and we have to go out to the membership to vote for the special assessment. And it really boils down to whether or not it's an emergency and whether or not it's unforeseen. So when we're talking about reconstruction as a result of deferred maintenance, where is that line for emerg- where, where we can call it an emergency and when we need to get membership vote? Today's episode is brought to you by Altera Assessment Recovery. Altera provides comprehensive attorney-supervised assessment collection services to community associations throughout California. Trust us with your collection needs. We'll get the job done, done right, and as quickly and efficiently as possible. Altera Assessment Recovery. We're the collection team you've been looking for. Yeah, we're running low on time here. (laughs) (laughs) Because when there's, because to my mind, you know, and and again, I'm not an attorney, but to my mind, you know, there's, we know there's deferred maintenance. We've been filling out this annual disclosure. You know, at some point, it's not an emergency anymore. At some point, you know, we've had enough leaks, we've had enough problems, we know there's an issue, and we've let it compound for so long that now we have the $80,000 special assessment. Can we really say that it was unforeseen? Don't we have to go out to the membership for a vote? I know where that line is. That line is between the engineer coming on site to give you a bid and receiving the bid. It's right there. It's right before he comes in is where it was. It would be not an emergency. And right after you get it is where it's now an emergency. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, to the point, okay, well, once the board's notified, no, we actually have imminent life safety Mm-hmm. issues right it is an emergency right not just oh now it's an emergency because it's just so bad and we, we got to get ahead of this thing well you know if it's a life safety concern i mean emergency special assessments especially an eighty thousand dollar one you're right how does an eighty thousand dollar become unforeseen uh if it's not you know a sinkhole that just opened up in the middle right. of nowhere or something that you know we got hit by a meteor you know whatever i mean that's the unforeseen thing but at some point you know i mean how do you how do you draw that line i mean it might have been foreseeable Right. But but regardless, we get to the point now where we've got a report saying, no, this is actually a life safety issue. Yeah, we should have dealt with it before, but now it really has risen to the level uh, of an emergency. And, you know, we have to we have to pull the trigger in that regard. So yeah. they, need, they need to talk to their legal counsel. And they really have to have an analysis done of the situation and, yeah. and using their experts and using the experts. I mean, I, I, you know, as a lawyer, I can't advise you what's a life safety condition or not. Right. right. An engineer could do that. Right, but I could tell you what the legal, what your legal obligations are in response to the information that an engineer has given you regarding the condition of, you know, of your building. Um, you know, plumbing pipe leaks or, you know, a big reconstruction project that's not an imminent life safety thing that might not be grounds for an emergency special assessment. But still, it doesn't mean like it's any less significant uh, to deal with. 
Oh. Right. But, you know, like, again, going back to these balcony inspections, we could have deferred maintenance on the balconies that we know is there. But until the SB 326 inspection is done, we may not know how imminent exactly. the, the threat is to those because particular balconies. Because we don't want to ask the question, right? This right. is kind of the bigger point, right? Are you satisfying your duty of care by acting on an uninformed basis, right? You could still be justified in not acting and not addressing it, provided that you have information that justifies that course of action. The information that justifies that course of action can't be, well, I just kept my head in the sand. Right? That's what happened in the Palm Springs case, right, where the court said we can't incentivize directors to be willfully ignorant. And that's why I think this is a wake-up call. I mean, it's again, it's a tragedy, but it is a teachable moment because now you can just say, well, Surfside, this is why we do this. Mm-hmm. This is why the situation, this is why the experts are here. I think for the board, boards too, humble themselves. You know, the pep talks that you brought up, Ramona, sometimes boards say, well, I got to, you know, face the community and they're going to want me to have answers to all these questions as a board member. Sometimes we have to say, wait a second, what's your job as a board member? Your job is not to, it's not reasonable for you to know how every facet of the construction or the buildings put together from an engineering standpoint. If I'm a member and I'm in the audience, I don't, especially because now I'm, you know, versed in this field. I don't want a board president or a vice president or whomever up there saying, I know everything. Don't worry about it. I have it all under control. I want someone who's saying, I'm a volunteer and I recognize the seriousness and severity of what I do and the decisions I make affecting everybody. And because of that, I have this beautiful cadre of experts here. They're going to tell us what they think we should do about it. Right? That to me is a board member that's really satisfying their duty of care. I've made questions and in order for us to act, I brought in the experts that are licensed and insured to give us that direction. I'm not going to sit here and say, don't worry about it. I talked to these people or I got a guy who's going to do that repair job cheaper than uh, you know this licensed and insured company. Don't worry about it. I'm going to keep the assessments low. Please you know, raise a glass to me at the next community picnic. Right? That's not really what this no, is about. No, that's a good point. That's no, great. and that's, I mean, that's, that's essentially the business judgment rule, right? I mean, these, our board members are volunteers. They're not expected to know everything. So as long as they're... They're acting in the best yeah. interest. They're following the advice of the experts. They're going to have some insulation for the decisions that they make. They shouldn't know everything. I mean, if I was on my HOA's board, uh, I wouldn't practice law or advise the board from a legal perspective, even though I'm an expert in the field, because when I'm at that table, I'm supposed to be a volunteer. Right? Same thing. If you're on your board, right, Connor, as, as you know, you're on your HOA board and they said, well, Connor, what should we do? Right. You know, you're the, you've got a construction company you do all this other type of stuff. You're going to say, I think we should reach out to a contractor or an engineer and let them advise us because I'm here as a volunteer. Right. And I think board members need to have that same thing. Well, I have a financial background. I did financial plannings. I understand some constructions. I could, no, no, that's a 30 year roof. We don't have to worry about it or all these other stuff. No, that's, we need a reserve analyst to come together and put together a reserve funding plan. I don't care how skilled you are in those things. When you're at this board table, you're a volunteer. And as part of your duty of care, you're supposed to ask questions and engage experts to give you answers and then make decisions based upon what the experts tell you. Right, and that's that's aside from uh, uh, a conflict of interest even to boot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. People get, oh, I can I can do that. Sometimes we'll get the, you know, uh, asset managers or guys that are in investments saying, no, just, just give me the association's reserve funds. I can generate a higher level of return uh, on the association. No, 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 wait a second. Slow your roll. That might be well-intentioned, but that's not what you're – it's better for you as a board member if you don't do that. I'm trying to keep you out of, out of getting in trouble, right? And that's, I think, the lesson that board members need to know. You don't have to have all the answers. And sometimes the answers are stuff that you don't want to hear, but your job is to – Get the people in there in place and have them communicated to your membership. And if it's an unfortunate situation where people have to pay money, it's probably because there's a good reason why that money needs to be needs to be spent. Right? We actually recently came across a project that um, the legal counsel brought us in to be 
distributing the tasks out to different professionals, right? So they have various projects, let's say eight or nine projects in different states of incompleteness. So structural issues, one building is is settling significantly on a hillside. They've got a V-ditch that was built without permits that no way it was built to code. Let's say there's nine of these things. And one of the first conversations that we had was, Connor, you're the construction manager, but although you know construction, you grew up in it, you may not be the person to make the call for this. So even if your building has serious issues, you need to start somewhere, right? So if they called me and I'm not an engineer, but I can go out there, look at it and see what exact trade is right for diagnosing this problem. So really getting out there and, and getting the right team together is, is very important. No, I think it boils down to the willingness, the willingness to, to do what needs to be done. I have a friend um, right now who sits on the board for her association and she's struggling to get her board to make a decision on a major project because they're afraid to spend the money. And she says, we're fully funded in the reserves. The money is there. It's been set aside for this purpose. But there's a hesitancy to spend the money. You have a board, and and I see this a lot um, in, in the active adult communities, where it almost becomes like they see it the same as they would their personal savings account, and they're they're afraid to spend the money because what if? And many of them came from a generation where there were hard times. You know, when I was a manager, I was working with board members that came from that World War II generation that remembered rationing, and there were times when I couldn't get them to spend reserve money. So, Mike, to you, I know that there's no magic number, and every association has a different dollar amount based on the assets that are specific to that association. But what is healthy? If you were going to talk about like a percent funded range, what is what is healthy? Because not every association is going to get to 100%, but are they going to be okay if they're 80% or if they're 90%? You know, wh- what can a manager tell a board? So that's a that's a good question. So I'm sure I, you've never gotten it. Never heard that one before. <laughs> no. What level and, is healthy for our reserve fund? So so everybody, but everybody just wants a number. So I'll say I'll say 75. But that really doesn't even mean anything. Right? It's your three quarters accumulated of the wear and tear of the used life of your components, your three quarters accumulated. What's far more important is is okay, that's a fine number, but what's more important is what do the next five years look like when you maybe got some paint to do or you've got some asphalt to do or maybe some roof work, whatever you've got going on. The, looking at five years and then the, the other part of that though, because it can't just be five years, it's what does it take? Is all you're doing is increasing the reserve allocation in those five years, three or four percent each year? Then you're golden. Then then seventy five is great, and frankly, you're probably solid even at a lower percentage, possibly. But that's the problem: is nobody nobody looks at it that way. Everybody just looks at a number, and it, it doesn't matter if you've got a funding plan that says, "Well, we have to re, we have to increase the reserve allocation twenty five percent, not the whole assessment, but just the reserve portion twenty five percent for three years." Because there's too much deficit in the reserve funds there that we have to increase it that much, then that's a huge problem. You don't even you don't, and you wouldn't even know if someone just throws a number at it. But if it but if again it's only a small increase or, or next to no increase, then and you still maintain a good level, then that's great. Yeah. So it's so it's a financial projection 
each time, right? Because it's it's what components do I have coming up this year and what money am I spending this year? And then what do I have coming up over the, the course of the next five years? So I, I work with a lot of associations that only do a three-year study because that is all that is required by the code. I'm going to kind of set you up here. But what is, what is your feeling on that in terms of should they be doing an annual reserve study? Should they be doing the, the computer updates each year? And I would assume that they do because there's an annual reserve funding plan that has to be updated and reviewed. But, you know, if, if we're really looking at our reserves and we're really looking at the five-year projection and then the 30-year projection, don't they need to be doing this fairly regularly? Every, should do it every year. Um, I suppose you could say economies of scale don't work well for a three, four, five unit development, right? I mean, that because there's kind of like a minimum yeah. cost to do anything. I, I get that issue. But I think let's just start with the legal aspect of it, which is that the code is very clear about three-year reports. It is very gray, and it really doesn't speak much at all to financial updates. It does say in there that along with your uh, annual disclosures, you're supposed to send out, you know, there's reserve information that goes out. I don't personally think that the intention of that and the spirit of that is to send out a one or two year old disclosure that talks about what it was in 2019. You know, the monthly assessment was $500 in 2019. Well, we're at 2022 now. And so, and maybe the assessment said it was 500. Now it's 650. Well, so someone takes a pen, scratches that out and puts 650 in there, but you've got a funding plan and a bunch of things that are also out of date. So, so I do believe, and, and most of our clients do financial updates in between. I would say it's going to be primarily a lack of perceived value in a reserve study that would have somebody not doing them annually, for the, primarily for that reason. Uh, or it could be ignorance is bliss. But I, I would say that, and particularly a lot of expenses going on, if you're a little bit older community and, and you've got the market running up high, uh, it would seem ripe for a lawsuit there too. Yeah. Someone buys in. And they say, well, I didn't know there was going to be a special assessment. I didn't realize everything was that old, you know, because they're working off of old information, maybe. Yeah. Um, the disclosure was, you know, misrepresented in some respect. It wound up becoming misrepresented because of maybe because they just found out they have to repipe. Mm-hmm. And we put that in the reserve study or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that would certainly very much so skew it. Now, the other thing you mentioned about older folks uh, and not wanting to spend reserve funds um, kind of, I, I, I get that we, we run into that a lot, and a lot of people think, well, if we spend all of our reserve funds, then our percent fund is going to be lower. But that's actually incorrect. Also, if you've got a component, if you've got a roof expense component that has a zero remaining life or a one year remaining life, mm-hmm. and let's just say it's three hundred thousand dollars, and so you've been setting aside ten thousand a year to get to that, to that magical thirty year number where now you're spending it, your hundred percent funded value is three hundred thousand. The next year that you've done that roof work, your 100% funded value is 10,000, mm-hmm. not 300. So you're so sure you've you're 300,000 less cash, but you're also 290,000 less 100% funded. Right, you, re, you so reset, you, you, you reset back to zero. You could have significantly less money in the bank the following year 
but be at the same percent funded level or potentially even a greater percent funded level, right? Exactly. I mean, because you, you repaired the component that you were supposed to. You spent Correct. the money that you were supposed to spend. Right. Yeah. It's like reconciling. It's it's like it's almost like reconciling your checkbook. Yeah. Right. You know, gosh, look at that. I got a whole lot of money in there. Well, yeah, but you know, you you didn't you didn't make a note that you've made a couple of mortgage payments and whatever else. So you really don't have what you think you have. So on a duty of care issue, we're hesitant to spend the money that's been set aside for us to spend right now. Correct. Well, okay. And again, why are you hesitant to spend them? Well, what if we don't have money? We have to increase assessments. Increasing assessments is, or not increasing is, is not your job. Your job is to maintain assets. This money's been set aside for you to replace or repair this major component. Right. And that's what you have to do. I really like listen to what you had to say more because I mean we get this question a lot. Is you know what's the what's the percent funded that we need to be at? And I think a lot of times board members. I know this may sound cynical. They just want to be like, why? You know, we're in excess of 75%, so we're doing a good job, and we get the board member of the year award, and isn't that fantastic? Sometimes I try to explain it in my layman. said, well, it depends. You know, if you're 50% funded and your only, you know, major component is some, you know, common area landscaping that you're set aside, if there's a shortfall there, it's not like you're going to burn your membership. But if you're a high-rise, right, and you're 50% funded, Right then, they could be catastrophic in well, the event of a shortfall. Right, you find out your chiller isn't three hundred thousand dollars; it's six hundred thousand exactly. because you forgot to add the crane in or the helicopter that's going to drop exactly. it off. Right? The economies are different, but now I think the best answer is when I get it again. What healthy? You know, what's the what's the level of healthy reserves? Whatever level your reserve analyst thinks is healthy. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is right? how, how really often? What it should be. Yeah, I mean, how often do you get to come to a board meeting and talk to the board about? Your reserve study. Well, with Zoom, a whole lot more. That's great. That's great. And that is great. That's great. That is great. All these nuances, right? Yeah. I mean, all these board members, they just want these bright light. Well, are, do we need to be at 60%? Do we need at 60 and Well, that's why I asked. It depends. Yeah. And that's why I asked the question is, you know, how many board meetings does he have the opportunity to attend? Because, again, just based on my experience, board members have a two-hour meeting, maybe a three-hour meeting in their contract. They have a lot of business items to discuss. And so the business partners don't always get to attend a board meeting. And I think going back to duty of care, utilizing the advice of the experts, bring those people into the board meeting, talk to them, talk about the reserve study, talk about the insurance policy, talk about you know, the engineering report, whatever the case may be, but you've got to sit down and you've got to have those difficult discussions. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you all for listening. We'd also like to thank Mike Graves and Connor Ross for your time and expertise. Make sure to visit our website at tinleylaw.com if you haven't already, where we break down this episode, then stay tuned for our next one. To share or subscribe to the Tinley Talks podcast, visit us at tinleylaw.com. There you can find links to everything discussed in this episode, locate helpful resources, check out other episodes, and submit questions for future topics. And be sure to tune in next month for our next episode. As always, the views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast, please consult with your association's legal counsel. This is Tinnelly Talks presented by Tinnelly Law Group. Your community, your council.